you would turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah chapter 29, as we continue to make our way through this prophecy. There was a bit of a debate, again, as is common going through this prophecy, as to whether to split this into two sermons or keep it as one. Well, as you can see, I decided to keep it as one. Isaiah chapter 29, beginning at verse 1. Let's give careful attention to the reading of God's most holy and infallible word. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped, add year to year, let the feast run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel. And there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around, and will besiege you with towers, and I will rage, raise siege works against you. And you will be brought low, from the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost. And from the dust your speech shall whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. And the multitude of the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her, shall be like a dream, a vision of the night, as when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he is eating, and awakes with his hunger not satisfied, or as when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking, and awakes faint, with his thirst not quenched, so shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Bind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, Read this. He says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, Read this. He says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden." Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, 
and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make us? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field? And the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffers cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off, who by a word make a man out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. Therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they shall sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. And those who murmur will accept instruction. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. One of the things that we find frequently in the Bible is this contrast of ideas. And chapter 29 here of Isaiah is no different. How often we have seen, even as we've gone through Isaiah, as we've gone through other passages in Scripture, a contrast of what will happen to the wicked and what will happen to the righteous. Now, of course, even that needs to be qualified because what happens to the righteous, they're righteous on account of what God himself has done. They're not righteous in and of themselves. And in fact, even as we look through chapter 29, as you read through it, you probably noticed it wasn't because of anything the people had done that these blessings in the second half of the chapter come. It's all because that's what God will do. From chapter 28 all the way through the end of chapter 39, it sort of is, it runs parallel to the oracles to the nations that we saw from chapter 13 to chapter 27. There we had specific nations that God judged, including his own people, warning of danger that was about to come because of their sin. But now as we move into chapter 28 and move forward, much of it is repeated but in broader terms, without necessarily many nations specifically mentioned, though God's people are again. And yet, the other thing about that this section is, not only is God declaring what will happen, he is making known to them that it is he who will do it. 
And he has the power and the authority to do it. He has the right to do it. Now, as we look at chapter 29, or yeah, as we look here at chapter 29, it is rather interesting because some see a wonderful chiastic structure. And you know, some of you, of course, know what a chiasm is. It's sort of a poetic way of expressing yourself. Something like A, B, B, A. Well, some see a chiasm of basically five deep. A, B, C, D, E. And then it goes backwards. D, C, B, A. But there are also other kinds of parallels that are here. There are allusions to other portions within the prophecy. And this, of course, is what makes Isaiah so beautiful as a prophecy and the poetic structure of all of it. It truly is a remarkable work of art. And for me as a former math teacher to say that, that must mean something. Well, here we are in Isaiah 29 and we're dealing with an issue again. We're dealing with God's people living in rebellion and yet also seeing God restoring his people. And it is quite simple. Perhaps you, as we're reading, as you were reading, saw some allusions that we've touched on or have seen in other contexts from the New Testament. It's there. It's clear. And so at the end of the day, Isaiah 29, just like the rest of the prophecy, really is focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes in the prophecy, it's more explicit. Other places are more explicit to the gospel than chapter 29. But nonetheless, you cannot separate the grace that you see, particularly in the second half, from the gospel of Christ. That also means you can't separate the judgment that you see from the fact that Jesus as king reigns. Well, as we look through this, this chapter in particular, we probably will not be taking a fine-tooth comb to every word and every jot and tittle, but nevertheless, get the main points and get the idea of what is being presented here this evening. So what I hope to show from this text is simply this, that through the gospel, the Lord will make all things right in the world. It really is that simple. Through the gospel, the Lord will make all things right in the world. We're going to look at this under two headings. And really, verse 14 is going to be that hinge. First, we'll look at God's judgment. And then secondly, God's restoration. God's judgment and then God's restoration. So first of all, God's judgment. Look again at verse 1. Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Now, Ariel is mentioned four times in the first two verses. Mentioned again a little bit further on in the chapter. The footnote here in the ESV is help, helpful, especially as you look at the end of verse 2, that it refers to like an altar hearth. That seems to be the best fit for the description, especially in the context here of the first half of chapter 29. Ariel generally refers to Jerusalem. You notice in verse 1, it's the city where David encamped. As you jump down to 
verse 8, you see that Mount Zion is mentioned in the same context with verse 7 of Ariel again. So this is clearly about Jerusalem. But we also need to understand particularly that as we look through this text, it is a message against the sin of God's people. So in that sense, the message is timeless. And it is a message that is meant for you and for me. And it's meant for the church today. Now notice in verse 1, add year to year, let the feasts run their round. That is simply a description of Israel, Judah in particular, doing all of their religious ceremonies year after year. As we saw a little bit further, as we'll see again a little bit further down in the text, a reference that's made in the New Testament, how people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In other words, they're checking all the right ceremonial boxes, but it's not enough. They're doing it, and God is basically taunting it. Let them run their rounds, and notice what happens. Despite this, distress will come on Ariel. There'll be moaning and lamentation. You could actually translate that as moaning and groaning. But I want you to notice in particular in verse 2 and in verse 3 where this distress is coming from. It is God who says it, I will bring this distress. It is the Lord who will do this. He will judge his people. The word here for distress, it, it's synonymous to what you see elsewhere about uh, bringing straits upon or even oppressing people. Now, God is, of course, not vindictive. What God does is just and righteous and holy. His people rebelled against him. He warned them what would happen way back, year after year, century after century, what would happen if they rebel against the word of the Lord. He's just fulfilling that which he warned. And he's doing so as their holy God. And the language here, God will encamp against you all around. He'll besiege them. He'll raise siege works. That's a description of what God will do. In other words, he's going to use the nations of the world to do this. In the immediate context, we know this was the Assyrian Empire. We read something of the Assyrian Empire from 2 Kings. This is what he would do. All because the people rebelled. And what ends up happening, as you see in verse 4 in particular, they're brought low. They have to speak from the earth. In other words, as one commentator noted, the four, first part of verse 4 indicates that they're losing their status. Whatever status they had, they no longer have it. They are brought low. But the second part of the verse goes even further. Their voice, like that of a ghost, speech that's just a whisper. That's the loss of any strength that they had. They've lost any status. They've lost all strength, all because they refused to heed the word of the Lord. 
As you move into verse 5 and 6, this gets a little bit confusing, particularly verse 5. But the multitude, the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. Now, the foes here being pictured as small dust and chaff, it's a temptation to think of something like Psalm 1. The righteous are not, the, the wicked are not so. They're like the chaff that blow away in the wind. There's something to that, but that's not really what's being described here. Sometimes chaff in the Bible is used as a description. In other words, that something is going to happen with great haste. And the speed, we know from history, the speed with which Assyria came in and basically took out almost the entirety of the promised land was quite remarkable. As one commentator put it, he put it this way, describing chaff for the foreign nation. Chaff in particular for, represents swift divine judgment against which those who are guilty are helpless. That's the situation they find themselves in. That's the difficulty they face. But then suddenly, they're visited by Jehovah. And at first, you might think, this is a rescue. Here comes the Lord to our rescue. But notice what ends up happening. With thunder and with earthquake and great noise and whirlwind, and the flame of a devouring fire. That's language that we saw in the previous chapter, dealing with hail and water. This is God who is doing it, and God who is coming as an overwhelming judge against his people's wickedness. So most people don't want to hear that side of God. And I find that all too often, a lot of people want to stress one attribute of God over against all the others. When in reality, when speaking of God, you can't put one attribute above another. All his attributes are equal. Yes, God is love, and all of us in here thank him for his love, but he is also holy and he is righteous, and he is just, and his wrath and his judgment are an outworking in time of his holiness against sin. And the picture here is one of overwhelming conquest on the part of God against the wicked. So much so that it will affect just about everything else. The same nations that attack, they'll quickly fade as well, like a dream. In other words, their way is fleeting. It, it's almost like, and this is where it does get difficult here in the text, trying to understand the imagery of what Isaiah is trying to bring before us in verse 7 and verse 8. They'll all fight against her uh, as a stronghold. They'll be like a dream. In other words fleeting. It'll just disappear quick. So even the nations will feel God's judgment. It's not just God's people. 
as when a hungry man dreams and behold, he's eating, but he wakes up and he's not satisfied. What a disappointment that would be. Imagine thinking and dreaming of a wonderful Thanksgiving dinner and you can't wait. That turkey, those mashed potatoes, that pumpkin pie, that pecan pie. Your mouth is drooling in your sleep and then you wake up and it's not there. What a disappointment. It's fleeting. There's no satisfaction in it. It's a fading dream. What he does is pointless. But it goes even further. It gets even deeper. These are the nations that will be, that fight against Mount Zion. But as you move into verses 9, really through verse 13, there's a sad state that is being described here with respect to God's people. Astonish yourselves, or as the ESV footnote has it, linger a while, hold, stay, be delayed even, and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. In other words, what is coming upon God's people as part of their judgment is a spiritual stupor. It's not unlike what we saw in other prophets some time ago. We see it in Hosea. We see it in Amos where there is a withholding of God's word. And as a result, the people spiritually starve. Here is a picture of spiritual sleepiness. And if ever there was a description of much of the church today, it's that. This idea of spiritual sleepiness, drowsiness. So much so that notice what happens in verse 11 and 12. The vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I can't because it's sealed. He can't figure it out. He won't open it. And it doesn't bother him. And then you also have others who cannot read it. Now this could be taken literally. Of course, there was unquestionably illiteracy everywhere. But it also seems to have an indication that the person almost refused to want to read it. Read this. I cannot read. Or I cannot understand it. It is so sad today that so many professing Christians will turn to anything but God's word for help, for guidance, for life. Their Bibles collect dust on their shelves. And this is part of this spiritual stupor. And notice in verse 13 what we've seen in other places of Scripture, not just here in Isaiah. It's referenced, of course, in other places. It's cited, for example, in Matthew chapter 15. 
Because this people draw with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people. He's describing a religious people that literally have no spiritual heart. And what a sad state that is to know all the right things to say, to know all the right things to do. They know when the sacrifices are. They know, they know their Jewish calendar. They know when the Passover is. They know when the Feast of Booths is. They know the pilgrimages. But their hearts are far from God. And again, it's easy for us, so many centuries removed, to look back and just look at that and shake our head. What a shame, those silly, silly Israelites. When the same can be true of so much of the church today. Even those of us who are reformed, we love our standards. We love our Robert's rules. We make sure we do everything procedurally accurate. But are, are our hearts in it? Do we just pay lip service? Do we just go through the motions? Or do we do these things out of a heart and a desire to love and demonstrate that love of God? Do we give thanks for what he has done in Christ? Or do we simply do what we want to do? Just go through the motions, do the bare minimum, and say, I've done my spiritual duty. My friends, if you fall into that temptation, let me encourage you, let me urge you, repent. Repent of such laziness. Because that's what that is. And turn back to Christ. There is great joy in doing all the so-called religious things that we're supposed to do. But we do it because of what God has done for us. We do it because of who God is. We do it because of the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. We do it because of our union with him then it becomes a joy to do and we don't want to do anything else. If you wonder if you're feeling like you have this spiritual stupor, is it the kind of thing each and every week, I just can't wait till he says amen. And I don't mean just me, by the way. It doesn't matter who it is. Or do we long to be with God's people in his presence to worship him? Are your hearts far or are they near to him? Do you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind? The people of God in this context lost it. May it never be so with us. They honor God with their lips while their hearts are far from him. And their fear of him is a commandment taught by men. In other words, the doctrine of men. That they make up, like the Pharisees in Jesus' day. 
And notice what he says in verse 14, which is a hinge verse, actually. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with his people. Now, one of the things we need to keep in mind, that we see the word wonderful in the Bible, that doesn't always mean positive things. It is just that it is something that is so unbelievable that it is almost something that just shuts your mouth. It's astonishing. You can't believe you just saw what you saw. No words can describe it. That could be positive, but it also could be very negative. In this case, as I said, it's a hinge verse. It applies to what precedes it. So on the negative side, what we're dealing with is what God's judgment will be against his people, though he was long-suffering for so long. Yet at the same time, what follows is something remarkable and wonderful. Despite their sin, the Lord will turn it all around. That's why verse 14 is just such a wonderful, no pun intended, hinge verse. It matters. It's right there in the middle for us to recognize the judgment of God is something astonishing and wonderful, too much to consider. Yet at the same time, so is his grace. So is his grace. So is his love toward his people. Well, this brings us then to our second point, God's restoration. And we'll probably move through this a little bit quicker. Notice verse 15. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as a clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make us, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? As you look at this, it seems like where's the grace? Well, God is addressing these very people. He's addressing these very people, and he describes them in 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 a fashion that really is not flattering. Not flattering in any stretch of the imagination. First of all, they think they can get away with everything they do. Who sees us? Who's going to know? We can do whatever we want. You hear the expression, hey, it's not illegal if you don't get caught, right? It's the same kind of idea. It's absurd. Of course God sees. But it's even worse than this. Notice what God says of these people. You turn things upside down. It's like the potter being regarded by the clay in a negative fashion. Shall the thing made say to the maker, he did not make us? It's absurd. But this is exactly what the world does today. What is known of God, he has made clearly known to all of mankind. His invisible attributes, his power, his might are clearly on display. There's no God. 
That's response of the world. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. This is what Paul says in Romans 1. The thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. And you read this. This is who God is, ad uh, is addressing. These who have the audacity to have this attitude toward God. And then notice what happens in verse 17. The unexpected. Is not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field. And the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. What's going on here? We think about the first half of this chapter and we see the judgment and the picture that is described here and God is addressing these very people and all of a sudden you have words of blessing. You have words of grace. You have words of hope. How could this be? It's because our God is gracious. It's because of the gospel and even the Old Testament had the gospel in their reach. It's because God is gracious and God would do these things even for this stiff-necked people. And my friends, I don't know about you, but that sure gives me hope. Because there are many times where I feel like I'm the one like this. I know better. Why is God bringing this upon me now? I wouldn't have done it this way. And yet he still shows grace. And not only does he show grace, he gives abundant blessing. Fruitfulness. So massive that the fruited fields are like a forest. It is beyond blessing, if you can even describe it that way. Now you see why verse 14 is a hinge verse. This is just too wonderful. This is astonishing. We think of God's judgment and how that just makes us shake our head and we have no words for it. But think of his grace and what it does for his people. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. Now, a couple things about this verse. First of all, it's allusions to the New Testament, or the Old New Testament alludes to this. Jesus uses this verse in part to describe to John the baptizer in prison that, yes, I am the Messiah. I am the one who was to come, because the blind receive their sight. You realize in the Old Testament, nobody who was blind ever received their sight. That happened when Christ came. He gave sight to the blind. But the other thing about this, if you take this more in its context, that day the deaf will hear the words of a book. What book? Well, go back Think back on what you saw in verse 11. The book that people said, well, it's sealed, I can't read it. 
or, well, I can't read. Now it is even the deaf will hear the book. They'll hear God's word. They'll respond to God's word. They'll be blessed by God's word. This is God's doing. This is his grace. Is it not wonderful? Is it not astonishing? The meek, they shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord and the poor among mankind. They shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. Those that were brought low, those who were speaking from the ground are now finding joy in God. Verse 20 and 21 kind of refer back to the ruthless, the wicked. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. Why and how will this happen? Who by a word make a man out to be an offender and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and with empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. Verse 20 helps us to see. What will happen to them? Verse 21, why it will happen. It moves from the consequence to the reason or explanation. In other words, God is going to rescue his people. He's going to save his people despite themselves. They didn't earn this. There's nothing in this text that says, wow, God is so impressed with your religious rights that I'm going to rescue you. No, he rescues them despite their hard hearts. My friends, that's the gospel in a nutshell. Despite ourselves, the Lord Jesus Christ died for sinners like you and me. Is that not wonderful, astonishing. We think about things that leave us speechless, that can bring tears of joy to our eyes and leave us speechless. We don't know what to say. That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ should do for us. It should be that wonderful for us. He rescues his people. They will exult in him. They will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. And as we've seen in other contexts in Isaiah, the Holy One of Israel usually refers to the coming Messiah. They will rejoice in the Messiah to come. How much more should you and I rejoice in Christ who has come, who lived, who died, who was raised for our justification and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, serving us still as our great high priest? Is that not wonderful? Is that not something for which we ought to have great joy? You actually are a part of the fulfillment of these verses. You get to partake in this. This is the joy we have in Christ. But as we close out in verses 22 through 24, 
it beautifully rounds out this chapter. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, who redeemed Abraham. Redeemed Abraham. This is what he says concerning the house of Jacob. Now, the first thing I note, it's interesting that he says the house of Jacob and not merely Judah. Because contextually, this is probably the time when the northern tribes were done. It was probably well fresh on their mind. And if they weren't quite done, they were about to be done. And there was no way anybody was going to not see that truth. But it's the whole house of Jacob that the Lord now addresses. He reminds them, the Lord, Jehovah, the one who redeemed Abraham, your father, Father Abraham, the many sons of Abraham. He's reminding that God redeemed Abraham. And that there are covenantal implications to that. Remember that God made a covenant with Abraham and his seed after him to be a God to them and to his seed. And we are the fulfillment of that. That's what Peter does at Pentecost. He connects at Pentecost that, that covenant made with Abraham. He ties it to the Davidic covenant as well. He ties it to all that is happening as he expounds on Joel chapter 2 and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He brings it all together. The Lord who redeemed Abraham. What we are seeing is a fulfillment, a predicted fulfillment of God's covenant promises. Promises that now include you and me. Notice what he says. Jacob shall no more be ashamed. What an incredible statement. If there was a people that should be ashamed, it would be Jacob. It would be Israel. And yet God is saying, no more shame. It reminds me of what the author of Hebrews says about Jesus with respect to us. He is not ashamed to call us brothers. What a tremendous statement that Christ, God the Son in the flesh, who died on our behalf, is not ashamed to call us brothers. There's a, there's a right way to use shame. God uses shame to bring people to repentance. But when they do repent, they need not feel shame anymore. That shame is taken away. And how awful it is when Christians, professing Christians, try to shame other Christians after they've repented of their sin. Because God says, you'll be ashamed no more. No more shame for God's people. No more shall his face grow pale. Probably a reference to terror. Terror for what they deserve. No longer will they have to face it. The color will come back in their face. For when he sees his children, that is Jacob, when he sees his children, 
the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They'll sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Notice the language here. It includes families. This is covenantal language to be a God to you and to your children. When you see all that God has done, all of you will stand in awe of God and sanctify his name. You will hallow his name. What is the first petition of the Lord's Prayer? Hallowed be thy name. Not hallowed is your name. It's a petition, not a declaration. May your name be hallowed, sanctified, regarded as holy. And it's with the whole household that this happens. And notice in verse 24, those who go astray in spirit, they'll come to an understanding. Those who murmur, they'll accept instruction. Chapter 29 is an amazing chapter to demonstrate a contrast. You know, there's almost a sense in which the way we've looked at this second half almost makes you want to forget the first half. And there's a sense in which that's true. That's the removal of the shame that, that's involved there. We recognize what God in his grace has done. But my friends, it's that first half that makes the second half all that much more wonderful. It is understanding what sin is. It is understanding who God is, what he is really like, that he is holy, that as even Isaiah saw, he is declared by the seraphim to be holy, holy, holy. He is the thrice holy God that cannot look upon sin, that must deal with sin, and he does for his people in Christ. You see, knowing what it is we deserve makes Christ that much more beautiful in our eyes. That's why verse 14 is such a wonderful hinge verse because it really does help us to turn our way of thinking around that what we have turned upside down God restores and reorients and puts right. This is the testimony of the gospel. This is what Christ does for his people. This is what he does for you and for me, despite ourselves. Is this not wonderful? And as verse 14 even indicated, it's not just wonderful, it's wonder upon wonder. And the beauty is, you look at the second half of verse 14, we think of that as only negative, but it really is a good thing for God's people. The wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Why? Because we have God's word to guide us. We have the Lord Jesus Christ to guide us. We have his spirit to guide us. 
These are wonderful things. This chapter reminds us of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what a thing it must have been to have heard this in Isaiah's day. But how much more for you and for me to see its fulfillment throughout the rest of Scripture and throughout the rest of church history since that, that God has done this wonderful thing. This is the gospel. This should encourage us. We should be reminded that though there is much sin and wickedness in this world, nonetheless, our God, through Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit, will be making all things right again. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in God in heaven, how we praise you and thank you that you are the God who redeems, who repairs, who restores, who saves sinners such as ourselves, who removes our shame, that through Jesus Christ we're redeemed. And as such, Lord, we pray that your Spirit would remind us of these truths as we read your word, that we would exalt in you that we would hallow and sanctify your name, that we would be a people that stand in awe of you. Lord, help us increase our understanding of these truths. May we rejoice in all that you do through Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.